Welcome everyone to episode 22 of Popcorn Peeps, the podcast in which we venture through the Hollywood Reporter's top 100 films of all time and give our thoughts along the way. This episode is dedicated to the 1957 courtroom drama, 12 Angry Men, directed by Sidney Lumet, featuring such actors as Henry Fonda and Lee J. Cobb. My name is Jordan Costa, and as usual, I am joined today by eyewitness, Sarah Alexander. Not guilty. Honorable Judge, Christopher McMullen. Never know what to say. Hi, everybody. And the defendant, Craig Moore. I'm reasonably doubtful. <laughs> See, sometimes. Most of the time. What did you guys think of 12 Angry Men? Yeah, that was a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. I start, I'm starting to think I'm just really biased to 1950s movies because I'm going to put this up there with On the Waterfront for me. And I oh, like... The other kind of bias. Yeah, I like that. The, this is a criminal courtroom drama but solely just around jury discussion so you don't see anything about what was presented in trial it's just these people working through what was presented to them and I mean 100% this should have been a mistrial but I do think that this should be required viewing for everybody is that your official opinion as a lawyer this this would have been a mistrial you can't Sarah's not a lawyer Sarah cannot give legal legal (laughs) advice but you cannot have a member of the jury finding out the neighborhood where the defendant lives walking around buying a similar knife like all of that would have resulted in a mistrial for this <laughs> oh really chatting yeah. with people yeah did you guys get reservoir dogs vibes given the fact that we didn't see the crime or anything regarding the trial but you see just the aftermath and you build your narrative as you go i thought that was a cool parallel interesting i didn't pick that up but yeah that's good jordan you're smart jordan yeah I didn't relate the two films together, but I did get the same kind of enjoyable sense that I got out of Reservoir Dogs of everyone being kind of locked in the same room together. (laughs) There was only maybe, what, three sets in this whole movie, right? There was the very briefly at the beginning, you saw them leaving the courtroom. Then almost everything happened in the one room around the table, and there was the bathroom. And then like 20 seconds at the end as they said goodbye. Like it was all very contained and you could tell these men were stuck in this sardine can together trying to sort this thing out. It was really well done. They paid for a director, actors, and an editor. This was bare bones. And it just goes to show that you can create some really cool art without a million, two million, five million dollar budget. What I think is most interesting about the films from this era is they can't rely on crazy special effects or masterfully recorded scores to catapult them to success. You have to rely on clever writing and good acting. And as a result, I think this film has both of those components necessary to remain fun as a watch in 2021 and extremely relevant from like a political kind of like social culture perspective. Prior to doing Popcorn Peeps, we had a couple like pilot ideas going around for shows and we talked about cancel culture. And I thought this was really reminiscent of that where someone hears something so kind of outlandish or damning that they just immediately cut somebody off and they're not willing to hear a second side of the story or consider that that may not be the full picture. Just like the jurors do at the beginning of this film. There's 11 guilty just because of what they heard in the courtroom. And despite the fact that all of that stuff gets picked apart, they're not willing to go the extra mile to really pull the story apart to get the details. They're just willing to look at it at first glance and make a decision. And that's why I think most of us should watch this movie if we haven't seen it yet, especially today. I think it's just as relevant. Yeah, and there's one interesting part to note about that when you're comparing it to cancel culture is the hero, the quote unquote hero in this story, isn't a guy who was certain 
that the defendant was not guilty, that he was innocent of the crime, but he just didn't know and wanted to bear out the facts and see where the facts led him. The hero was just a curious person who wanted to talk about what went down. I think that also is helpful to show the different argument styles that people come from, and it's great seeing everyone's options out there. So like his take on it was just to ask questions, make people question why they have that belief. And I think that it does make you realize that whatever you're looking at it, you're obviously seeing it with your own implicit bias, and you're, that's what's coloring the picture of how you're responding or interpreting a situation. And I do think the whole concept of guilty beyond a reasonable doubt is really challenging for a lot of people to understand what that means. The other flip side is most things are judged in civil on a balance of probabilities. Like, okay, they more than likely did it. Mm-hmm. Where you get that when you see something, it's like, yeah, look at all this evidence. Like, yeah, he probably did it. But when you leave that gap, there is a reasonable doubt here. And it comes down to you're not asking if he's guilty or innocent. You're just asking, did they prove it beyond? a reasonable doubt and I I think it's challenging for people to come to that because in this day and age we try and be so certain and we try and be so steadfast and opening up that oh maybe I don't know or maybe I'm not a hundred percent can be uncomfortable well said and I think the film didn't really place a giant emphasis on the idea of reasonable doubt. I felt like a lot of them were saying they flipped from guilty to not guilty. And I understand those are the two sides, but I didn't really feel like a lot of the characters talked about, well, okay, I see now that there's room for error. It was just kind of almost like a, a binary thing. I feel like a lot of them did mention when they changed their vote that they they would say, oh, so the one guy would say, oh, you think he didn't do it? And he would, the person would say, I don't know. Okay, no, that's fair. Yeah, that's all it is. Yeah, that's the whole point of not guilty, right? Yeah, you don't know. Like they they didn't prove it a hundred percent. I'm not saying he's innocent. I'm no, just saying I don't, I don't know, know that he did do it. And that is your reasonable doubt. I think people get so locked into guilty or not guilty when you have to look at the big scope of things. It's like if there's wiggle room, you're not sure. You can't convict. Mm-hmm. And But they obviously thought that they had everything figured out based on how they interpreted what was presented to them in the courtroom. And again, this is not legal advice by any means. Don't come at me. But my professor in school always said, if you're guilty, have a trial by jury. If you're innocent, have a trial by judge only because the judge is obviously equipped with knowing how to weigh the evidence and what is reasonable doubt, whereas 12 of your peers have no clue and they're coming at it with their own implicit bias. So you're more likely to get off. It's so nice to have two friends that are lawyers. I'm not a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even work in the legal team anymore. I don't have any friends who are lawyers. Speaking of (laughs) being judged by your peers, what did you guys think of our characters? Juror number one is the best of them all. That can't be true. And I'm saying that with my own implicit bias because in a high school production of 12 Angry Men, I played juror number one. (laughs) Did you really? So they were typecasting. Uh, Well, Craig, we'll have to take a vote on that to determine if it's really true. Does everyone agree? No, juror number nine. The old man, I loved him. I wasn't good at getting all the juror numbers, but yeah, the old man was really good. I just remember he was beside eight, who was our main one in all. I just love old people, I think. (laughs) I have a question about the jurors. Did juror eight look so smart just because all the other jurors were so dumb? Or am I reading that wrong? I think you're reading that wrong. I don't think the other jurors were dumb. Yeah, I think that's just his argument style. Some guy was like, I gotta get to the ball game. I'm gonna miss the game. We gotta leave. 15 minutes. What else do we gotta do? So I think the purpose of the jurors was to have a full gamut of every type of person that you could have. And that guy who didn't give a shit and just wanted to 
get to the ball game. There's tons of people out there like that that could end up on a jury who really don't give a shit whether the person's guilty or innocent. They got their own shit to do, so they want the trial to be over as soon as possible. That's fucked. That's actually one of the things I thought they did really well. It would have been nice to see some non-white people. Well, I guess technically some of them were like foreigners. But... <laughs> Didn't you listen to that one juror? They're all criminals, Chris. Oh. And women? Women making decisions in the jury? Hell no. So I googled that actually about women being in juries because I was like, why weren't there any? But there's yeah. a women's washroom. So women in New York were allowed to be on a jury in 1927, but it was by volunteer oh. only. Like you were never mandated. It was only if you wanted to go. I don't know when it flipped. And then if you volunteer to be on a jury, a, a lawyer is probably going to not want you. 100%. So they're probably going to get you out of there. They don't. Lawyers don't necessarily want someone on a jury who wants to be there. <laughs> Is it voir dire <laughs> that you can just get rid of them for no reason? It would be in jury selection. But if it came yeah. up during trial, it would be oh, in a voir dire, okay. yeah. But the women, the selling point for them being able to be on a jury was they'd be good at seeking out lies because they're so used to talking to their children and sifting through the fibs. And I thought, oh my God. <laughs> That's amazing. Like they did an excellent job of picking archetypes. The apathetic one, like uh, the guy with the glasses, like juror number two i think it was or was he four the german guy no no they like the businessman the upper class man he had glasses he's very stoic who didn't sweat but then sweat i'm thinking of the guy with the glasses yes he was very yeah. like steadfast very prim and proper he didn't sweat and then there was the the poor kid who put on a suit i don't remember that guy he was the juror number four i think oh cr- <laughs> Craig, juror number four doesn't give me any tips. In terms of the jurors that I remember, I think Fonda did a great job. I loved his performance, but other than him, I agree with you, Sarah. Juror number nine, the old man, he had so much spunk. And when someone was like, you don't know what you're talking about, old man, he wasn't afraid. He stood up and said, if I was 20 years younger, I'd have decked you out or something along those lines. And he's the one that really pressures the fellow with the glasses to be like, hmm, are you sure? Like, let's break this down a little bit more. And he realizes that he has the dimples on there. As Sarah said in the up episode, old people should still be displayed as heroes. And he's the one who helps really contribute from the very beginning to reasoning with these gentlemen. Absolutely. Yeah, he was the first one to say, I don't know, but let's talk about it more. He was the first one that flipped, right? Yeah. So I Googled him, Joseph Sweeney, and I'd never seen him in anything before, but he was born in 1884. Oh, wow. oh my God. What a time to be alive. Yeah. Seriously. 1884, now you're in the movies in the 50s. Like, what have you seen? In terms of other fellows, Juror 12 was pretty useless, but I think he added a nice little layer of comedy to it. He was the fellow in advertising who was talking about all of his silly little gimmicks there on the side and just really trying to neglect the courtroom. And I think on a couple occasions, he was like, I'm voting for guilty. No, I changed my mind. Okay, I'm back on guilty. Ah, flipping back and forth. And I just appreciated some of the, the lightheartedness that he brought to really a very tense movie. I think he had ADHD. And I think you do meet a lot of people like that in life, whereas they're not really certain of where they'll fall and they'll be easily swayed one side or another. So I do think that was, like Chris said, a good archetype of someone that you would see out there. Yeah, very sheepish. Totally ADHD. That's like 100%. 
I liked I liked his character a lot because he was kind of making fun of like, oh, here's a stupid thing that we do at the ad agency the one time. Yeah. And then later on in the movie, he, he says something like, let's uh, put this on the floor and see if the cat eats it or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was a really funny guy. Kind of reminded my, me of my one grandpa actually with his crazy anecdotes. Otherwise, I think the only other juror that really had a lot of staying power in my mind was Juror 8, the other main character uh, played by Lee J. Cobb the real, I don't know if you would even call him an antagonist in the situation. He was Juror 3, wasn't he? Oh, oh, sorry. Opposing Juror 8 was Juror 3. Yes, you're right. Played by Lee J. Cobb. I, this was my only really, the only real point in the film that I thought that I was kind of being taken out of the experience a little bit. I thought the fact that he remained so steadfast in his stance, despite the fact that all of the evidence had been pulled apart, just because he was relating back to his own relationship with his son. I completely understand what the writers were trying to do but the fact that he would sentence this man to death when it's so obvious now that there is doubt just because he's so frustrated with his own relationship felt really inorganic and I think that having that as the final nail in the coffin the big swell at the end of the film really made the ending of the film not nearly as exciting as it could have been oh see I'm the complete opposite because there's there's nothing that will make someone stick to their guns past all reason than some sort of emotional trauma slash bias. Yeah, I'm with you, Chris. He just seems like a salty bitch. Absolutely. He was angry at his son. Yeah, he, he wanted was. to punish his son. They're out but there. he couldn't do it because yeah. now his son's a grown up and he can't punish his son anymore. And he's a angry at his kid for the way that his kid treated him. That rang so true to me. So he's going to take it out on this other kid instead. I don't know. I feel like I feel like having a relatable villain is really important in cinema and I just felt like I could not get behind what this guy was throwing down and maybe that's just a me issue and that's not an issue with everyone. Clearly this film is extremely well regarded so a lot of people obviously liked the ending who weren't me but I just felt like with a film that did so much right this was the only thing I could really pluck out and be like if I were to redo this I would tweak this part. Uh, Jordan, would you say you had a good childhood? Yeah, for sure. It's really good. Yeah, like how are things it's between solid. you and your dad? Sarah, did you have a good childhood? Don't ask that question. You don't want to know the answer. Let's say 50-50. <laughs> and how about you? Good childhood, Craig? Well, let me just uh, say it this way. I fully understand the problem <laughs> yeah. with Juror 3. So, I think I've sussed out why Jordan can't relate. Because <laughs> I had a loving family. Thanks, Mom and Dad. I appreciate it. The story that he brings up is that finally his son slapped him. So the fact that a son can be violent towards the father, I think it just kind of locked in there for him. Like, this could have been me. Like, the how dare this son treat his father that way? Like, that's just where he was yeah. like, yep. focused in on and doubled down the whole time, even when he was caught out. Yeah, after how many years of him beating the hell out yeah, of his son, he, and then I his think son he finally turned around and was like, yeah, well, you know what? Fuck you, Dad. <laughs> no wonder this angry bastard is running the mob at the docks. I mean, look at him. <laughs> He's an asshole. For those of you who might have missed a previous episode, Lee J. Cobb played the mobster in On the Waterfront, which you should go listen to if you haven't listened to it. It's a great episode. And a great movie. Another spillover from that movie is also the cinematographer. Boris Kaufman did the cinematography for On the Waterfront and for 12 Angry Men, which I thought was really good in this movie, given that you're in such a small room and it's starts out everyone's filtering in and you're kind of above watching them come in and get settled and then as the movie goes we just get closer and closer and closer and then you're in there and you feel kind of claustrophobic watching them talk and you're they're all sweaty and you're so stuck in and then finally when they get out we pull back out and we're watching them from above go down the stairs I just thought that was a really great way to work with the one room you're given and still give that tension just from camera work 
Could you imagine being the crew responsible for this? How yeah. like miserable those <laughs> the filming of this must have been to be packed in there like sardines. As yeah. You said. yeah, you got this guy <laughs> squeezed in the corner trying to stay out of the shot with the boom <laughs> mic holding it over the frame and his arms are so tired because he hasn't moved in 15 minutes. Yeah, he's like, can I get to the water cooler? I need 16 of you to move out of my way. <laughs> Shimmy through everyone. Yeah. I really hope it was a set that they just took a wall away. I read that the director made them all do their lines repeatedly without filming so that they would get kind of frustrated being in there so long and then finally they'd start filming them just to get that aggravation of being kept in this hot room. I totally got that from them. That the, the actors, the cast really made me feel like they were getting stressed out. They were hot. They hated being in that room together. Oh my God, why are we still here? All the actors are probably like, no, that guy intentionally yeah. stressed me out. I ain't signing up to do another movie with this guy. Fuck that dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then it became one, one of the most done. famous films of all time. And they were like, well, I mean, if it ain't broke. To be honest, I hadn't heard of this prior to this list. Not even in passing. Like, obviously I've heard of like The Godfather and a ton of these other really high profile older films, but nothing about 12 Angry Men. And I think it's shocking because we'll get to it eventually when we rank it but this is it's epically good quite good i've seen this mo movie over a dozen times wow maybe maybe more than 20 really times. holy smokes i think this was my first time well because you were in it too <laughs> you have firsthand experience. i lived this you life. lived it <laughs> i had to keep watching it to try and get my character down did you uh, do as good a job as they did absolutely not <laughs> don't ask him that question you know the answer uh i don't know i just like to see how people see themselves i have a, hel a healthy self-confidence but i didn't even do it justice moving away from the characters what are some of the moments in the film that really stood out to you so number one right off the top of my head when juror number eight wipes his face on the same towel that everyone else has been using and i'm like oh there's a pandemic bro Whoa. i said that <laughs> like the communal paper towel do you not know how those things work? Of course I don't know how those things work. I'm from this millennium. I'm not actually from this millennium. Chris I'm from isn't. Yeah. One of the actors was born in the 1800s, Chris. Obviously we don't know how it works. <laughs> you fucking dinosaur. How do you plug in your XLR mic with your fucking T-Rex so hands? It's not the same piece of towel. It's inside of the box that the, there's like meters and meters and meters of towel inside the top and you pull down a fresh piece. So, so when you pull this, you pull this piece down and then it's fresh. So it's like, Yes. So you're pulling it kind of up out of the top so it's fresh towel as you pull it. I, okay, what I had in my mind was it was this towel that when you pull it, it just ro it's like a loop of towel. No! And you're pulling down like old used <laughs> towel to dry your hands on. I'm like, That's what this I is thought so too. gross, man. It's disgusting. No, no, no. It's Every time you pull it, it's fresh linen. My thought process was maybe it's been up there long enough after it loops that it will have dried and you can recycle. That's what I thought it was. <laughs> That's why they had so many diseases. I feel like I'm on one of those YouTube channels where it's like, get kids to try and figure out what yeah. this thing is. And it's like, it's a rotary <laughs> phone. And they're like, I don't know how I'm trying to push the buttons, but it's not doing anything. One of my favorite moments was the reveal of the second knife. That was awesome. <laughs> they're just yeah. so confident that this knife is a unique item, a one of one. And he just goes, well, really? Pulls out the second one, stabs it in the table, and everyone's like, oh, taken aback, these big gasps. And it was really the first, like, like he pulled a rabbit out of his hat. And this was really the yeah. first, I guess, unraveling of some of this, like the ironclad evidence that we had from the court case. I liked later, later on in the film when they're, when they're debunking the evidence and the guy said, I think that, you know, the kid went in 
and he took this knife and he buried it into his father's gut. And the guy said, that's not the same knife, don't you remember? Yeah, he always, I think he said, pass me the murder weapon and the guy hands him the wrong knife or something like that and it starts right. this whole conversation. Because they had already handed the real one back to the bailiff or whatever. Yeah, they gave it back to the bailiff. Yep. Yeah, that was excellent. My favorite part is, I forget how we kind of got here, but juror number eight was kind of badgering and they were questioning how juror number three was so certain about something and he was so dead on, yeah, 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 yeah. But then he finally was just like, well, of course I don't know. And then admitted that he obviously had reasonable doubt and we were all like, oh. Right. But then he continued <laughs> on. I just thought it was a smart way to get there. Mind you, I cannot remember it now because it's been a week, but I still remember the reaction. I wrote down my favorite quote, which was, and I think it was Juror 3 that said this, but it, like I should have written it down. Do you think too much? you get mixed up. <laughs> That's why Chris doesn't think at all. Oh. Coming from Jordan. <laughs> Did you just say coming from Jordan? Because I didn't want to say it. <laughs> it sounds like something that they said to girls back, you know, back before women were emancipated. Right. Before we move on to the music, I just wanted to say one more scene that I thought was really powerful, which was when the prejudiced, bigoted guy was going on his rant about the poor people who are like animals and they're killing each other all the time. And all the other jurors kind of just turned their backs on him looked away oh that was beautiful except the one guy who sat there and listened to him and then when he was done he said why isn't anybody listening to me and and he said i did listen to you now sit down and stop talking i thought that was a really powerful great moment because people should treat bigots like that just fucking like this guy doesn't even mm -hmm. deserve the time of day yeah. The racism in this film was really uncomfortable, and I think they did a good job including racism, but doing it in a way that was satisfying, which is really weird because you almost never see racism and find it satisfying the way it's handled any time, but they did it here. Chris, as our resident dinosaur, what was racism like in the 1950s? I was born in 74. You're closer to it than us. Fuck you. <laughs> I imagine not great because it wasn't good in the 60s either. I think it was a lot more overt. Why I'm saying that is because I want to know if this response to it in the time would have been very shocking or would have been following like a social trend or like how that would have sat with audiences. I think it would have been atypical. I think it was an atypical response. I think so too. I think this was this would have been like, if we use the language we use today, this would have been a courageous portrayal. Yeah, I think so too. So that actually goes along with my point at the beginning that this is a better watch in 2021 than it is in 1957. Maybe. As much as things change, they stay the same. Could be. Craig talking about the scene with the racist reminded me of another one of my favorite lines, and it was him, and then I forget what other juror, and the racist one asked, like, why are you so polite? And the other juror was like, for the same reason you're not, like, it's how I was raised. And I thought, yeah. Yeah, that was good. Good. That, call him out. Nice little smackdown. I loved the, the breakdown of juror number three. I just thought that was epic. Yes, yeah. It was so good. I actually looked to see when method acting became a thing. But it was like in the 20s. But the difference between 1954 and 57 acting, at least that other movie and this one, the acting is... On the waterfront? <laughs> yeah, that one. I just didn't want to beat it again. It's so much better. It's so more real and organic. And maybe that's just because the writer of 12 Angry Men or writers had a better grasp on... It's based on a teleplay. Okay. from like even earlier nice but it was just like just so much more natural it didn't seem 
all through the other movie, the dialogue was not very realistic to me. And this, these really seemed like people talking. Like Voldemort, you can't speak its name. Yeah. Lee J. Cobb getting upset and screaming, I'll kill you, I'll kill you. Mm -hmm. And then Jury yeah, responding, really you don't really mean that, do you? That was really powerful because prior to that in the film, mm -hmm. Juror 3 had said, you don't scream, I'm going to kill you unless you're going to mean it. And then he did the exact same thing later in the film. Yeah. That was good. There were a lot of things, yeah. They set up a pin and then they knocked it down. That's why the writing is so clever. Like you didn't even see them setting it up every time. Like a lot of the times you don't see them setting it up. Then they hit it and you go, oh, I see what you did. Clever, clever. Imagine having <laughs> to write a movie. Imagine having to actually write a good film and have good actors portray good characters and read good lines instead of just putting like 18,000 superheroes on the screen and selling 32 movies with people shooting colors out of their hands. I watched The Ten Rings on the weekend. It was okay. I recommend. <laughs> uh, Jordan. Marvel simping is over. How did you guys feel about the fact that there was only one piece of music in this entire film? Was it at the end or at the beginning? Didn't notice. When was it? It was at the very end, right when the characters are exchanging names. Yeah, and it was just um... sort of like that uplifting 50s music. I noticed the absence of music. I like that there was no music because it made you feel like you were sitting in that room with them. I feel like if they would have added yeah. background music, it would have felt cinematic, but not realistic. Yeah. And I think the choice to not go with music, especially because not to be rude, but any music from the 1950s, the recording technology was shit. And I think it wouldn't have sounded good and it wouldn't have aged well, but not including music. Silence is silence. That don't change. And so that as a directorial choice, I think was really, really smart. And as such, I'm even going to say this is a good OST despite the fact that it was two minutes and 43 seconds long. Still better soundtrack than Slumdog. Um, I think... <laughs> I, mm, I'll fight <laughs> you know what? The lack of music did definitely increase the feeling of stress, the conveyance of the pressure that they were under, the feeling of being trapped in that room. It was wonderful. It was a great decision. Yeah, it was good. And I, I didn't actually realize that's what was happening. But when I look back, I'm like, oh, yeah, I get it. There was nothing. You got the storm, you got the thunder. But there is so good sound engineering, but there was no soundtrack. Silence is powerful. Yeah. And I think, yeah, like, have you ever been in a room where there's like a couple seconds of awkward silence and it feels like it lasts an eternity? I think the use of silence in this film is the reason why a lot of it feels so stressful and so tense. And you don't even know why until you think about it later on. You just you just mm -hmm. feel it as you're seeing the film. That's so smart. There's one other thing I don't want to miss. 50% of this movie happened in my head, right? How so? When I think about this movie, I, I think about like the son and the father, like I visualize it. The the son and the father fighting and the old man downstairs and the mm -hmm. the L train with the woman looking across. All that stuff in it. Yeah, you're trying to picture it in your head. Like, what would I think? Mm. I don't have to. It is literally yeah. part of the experience for me. When I, when I reminisce, like when I think about the movie, that imagery is part of it. That's where Chris also imagined the good ending to Amadeus. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm being really mean to you and I just need to stop. I'll shut up now. <laughs> It's hilarious. <laughs> but you're actually right. You're 100% right. It paints this, this such a vivid picture that they don't need to show you. And the fact that they don't show you makes it better because they put the pieces there for you mm -hmm. to build that set yourself. Yeah. And again, that's why it feels like you're in the movie because there's no flashbacks. There's no like family guy style flashback where you see like the thing happening. No, you have to build that. That's a great point, Chris. I didn't even think about that. They don't cut back to the trial to show us the cross-examination. They talk about what came out of the cross-examination and then they 
they talk about, well, how come that lawyer didn't talk, ask that question? Well, maybe he was a shitty lawyer, or maybe he was a lawyer with 58 other ca cases he needed to try today because he's a civil defender and he didn't have time to ask all these questions or think of that. They did such a great job of explaining what happened. It's like in, again, uh, Reservoir Dogs. We didn't see the robbery. We didn't see really anything that happened, but we feel like we did. It was We, we joked that it was the best bank robbery we never saw. And this is the best murder that we maybe never saw, but possibly also didn't happen. Sometimes <laughs> maybe, but we're not sure. Before we started today, I'm like, we're all sure he didn't do it, but we I'm never- I'm not sure he didn't do it. Oh, I'm okay. That's- I have reasonable doubt. I don't think he did that's it. That's a good question. We should we should go around, do you? Like not reasonable doubt, but like, just take it aside. You have to pick one or the other. It's a binary choice. He probably did it, but if you're being, if you're doing your job, you cannot vote him guilty, but he probably did. I don't feel like he did. I think there was too much stuff. Cut and dry. You're like, he probably did it. Sarah, where do, where do you fall? My thing is a lot of what we saw from the jury also probably would never be allowed because it was a lot of hypothesizing and building their own interpretations versus just looking on what was presented to them. And I mean, I'd have to say, I don't think I can say one way or another. I'm going to say there wasn't enough there. What do you think, Craig? It is not the responsibility of the defense to prove innocence. It is the responsibility of the prosecution to prove guilt. And I don't believe that the prosecution adequately proved guilt. Oh, I agree 100%. I like, that's not the question I'm asking. I, I'm not, I, I'm asking you personally. You're looking for a definite. Yeah, my moral compass tells me that if the prosecution didn't prove guilt, then I have to say he didn't do it. I'm not talking about all that abstraction. I really don't think he did it. I think he's actually innocent. No, he probably did it. Based on what, beyond a reasonable doubt, I cannot say guilty. I don't, I think you say it, I think, I think you say not guilty. It's not that he didn't do it, it's that we can't put him to death based on what we know. It's not though. You actually think he's innocent. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe, I, th I don't think it matters. And I don't. I bet if you guy who asked the right, the guy who wrote the play, if you could dig him up and ask him whether or not the defendant did it, he would say, I never wrote that into the play. That's not the point of the play. I get where Chris is coming from. I understand. So somebody else randomly broke into an apartment building, walked up the stairs, broke into the old man's apartment, stabbed <laughs> him with the same knife that his son had previously bought, then left it there and ran away. A random act of targeted violence. No, I, th I thought maybe it was one of the friends. You don't know if the old man had enemies. You know, maybe you watch an anime a little bit too loud and your neighbor goes, fucking those, that bastard keeps watching these cartoons at three in the morning. Oh my God. And he goes, I fucking had it. <laughs> got my knife that I got at the corner store and I'm gonna fucking stab that man. Jordan. You don't know, he, had, he could have enemies. I'm gonna wait for the L train to come by so no one can hear him scream. I think this is a lost cause. Also, the old man deserved Move it. point. Even if he did deserve it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but that's a different can of worms. Anarchy. One thing quick I wanted to point out was just that I thought this movie as a courtroom drama was one of the most relatable because for most of us here, we will be on the jury side of things. It would never be as a lawyer or a defendant. So when that's the focus of your movie, I do find it hard to relate to. But when you're a jury trying to work through a problem like this, I thought that was super interesting because that's where most of us will land. Mm -hmm. Before we move on to ranking, have any of you been on a jury? 
And Craig, your play does not count. I was selected to be on a jury or go into jury selection or whatever. And then I went to the courthouse and I stand in line to go through and pat me down because you're not allowed to bring weapons into a courthouse, which is probably reasonable. And then I go up to the guy and I'm like, hey, I'm here for jury selection. And he's like, oh, didn't anyone call you about this? I'm like, no. He's like, yeah, uh, that one got settled. We don't need a jury for it anymore. But uh, <laughs> I'll put your name on the list that you showed up. So you won't be on a jury for like four years. I'm like, fucking sweet. <laughs> That's the lesson. If you ever get to jury selection, don't answer your phone when they call you and then go in on the day and they'll put you on the list so you, that you don't get selected for four more years. 200 IQ. I had something like that happen similar. Nice. I want to be on a jury. That sounds awesome. I can't be on a jury because I'm technically an officer of the court from my paralegal licensing. I played the first half of Danganronpa, an anime video game all about detective work and court cases, and I want to do it for real. Let me on. Ontario, Ontario. You're going to be on a jury for like unpaid street tickets. If you know anyone who works for the judicial entity of this province, your boy is waiting. Get this man on a jury. <laughs> Do you understand that the jury you're gonna end up on is for like unpaid <laughs> parking tickets and an amount of two thousand dollars and you have to sit there and just sift through like get hype jury duty let's go no jury for that all right folks we're gonna rank this bad boy if you're following along with the youtube video you can check out a list of all of our rankings so far at the top of the description also on popcornpeeps.com however sarah where are you gonna put 12 angry men amongst the films we've seen so far I'm putting it in number one above Memento. Whoa. Wow. I thought this was a really good movie. It was in a nice lean package at 90 minutes. I thought a lot of the content that was in it is super important and relevant. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a real short one. Chris, where are you going to pop this bad boy? I thought I might be the highest one at five. So not not quite better than Amadeus, but better than Reservoir Dogs. And how about you, Craig? I'm sorry. You think that this movie is not better than Amadeus? <laughs> you and Amadeus. <laughs> you and I did not watch the same movie when we watched Amadeus. What was, what did I, what did you watch? Did you watch a cartoon about Mozart? Like, what? Welcome to the bi-weekly segment where Craig questions all of Chris's life decisions. <laughs> I just really liked it. Why you gotta be so mean? All right, all right. You want me to place this thing again? Okay. I have wisdom on my side. Someday you'll understand. <laughs> wisdom and intelligence are different stats. <laughs> All right, so where I'm going to place this on the list? Well, pretty simple. Pretty simple place. This movie and On the Waterfront both star Lee Jacob, and this beats out On the Waterfront as the best film that he appears in. This is number one on my list by far. It's so good. <laughs> wow. I'm surprised. That's like, I'm, I'm. I still can't get over that Chris put this below Amadeus. <laughs> I really liked Amadeus. Right? It's unbelievable. It was four hours. It wasn't four hours. It was three it. hours and eight minutes. It felt like four it and a half. It felt like a lifetime. I really liked it. I'm Sorry. Is the music done yet? No. Is the music done yet? No. Is the music done yet? No. Here's your Academy Award. <laughs> I love the music part. I am gonna okay, okay, I gotta I gotta calm down. I'm getting a little too squirrely here. I'm gonna place this movie at fourth underneath on the waterfront. I think if you think this film is better than on the waterfront, you're trolling, but it is better than Inception. Oh Jordan. Can we all agree that that's a trash take? No, it's right below On the Waterfront. I have On the Waterfront at four, this is five. The reason I put On the Waterfront at the top was because it made me ask myself interesting questions. And this movie did the same, 
but I think it did it better. Infinitely better. Like 10 places better. 12 places? That's what my thought was too. Chris, what are we watching in episode 24 of Popcorn Peeps? Very, very excited about the 1984 version of Ghostbusters. Thank you. I couldn't bring myself to do what I wanted to do. <laughs> Where can they watch it? They can watch it everywhere. It's on Crave Stars, on Stars, and Netflix. So if you don't have Netflix, I can't help you. I'd like to extend a special thank you to our supporters on Patreon.com. If you would like to support the show, there's a link at the top of the description of the YouTube video as well as on PopcornPeeps.com. But special thank you to Travis Laporte, Jim Wamsley, Ryan Saarinen, Frank Costa, Sarah Renier, Tyler Laporte, and Dick McTitty. (laughs) (laughs) Good every time. He says this is worth the $3 he spends every single month. And so it, I don't think it's going to stop. I think every week there's going to be a new pile of garbage waiting What are you talking Pile of garbage? I love it. No, it's a good meme. I, I appreciate it. Yes. It's funny. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Until next time. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.